Hi, I'm Pastor Joel of Heart City Church. If you would have met me about 15 years ago, I would have told you that I believed in God, and you would have noticed it didn't really impact much how I lived. But then I read Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozer, and it rocked me. Tozer wrote, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Have you ever thought that your thoughts of God define who you are? Tozer will go on to write that we go into decline anytime our concept of God declines. So friend, do you want a loftier view of God? Let's listen in on the prayer of David in Psalm 139. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. David's meditation in the first six verses is basically this. God, you know me completely. You know me better than I know me. Wherever I go, whatever I do, before I speak a word, <laughs> you know it all together. And I cannot even begin to wrap my mind around this. Friend, you ever pause to contemplate the wonder of God's absolute knowledge? In Galatians 4.2, Paul is writing of how his readers used to be enslaved to idols. But then he writes, But now that you have come to know God, or rather, to be known by God, do you hear Paul correcting himself in mid-sentence? The glory of the gospel is not that you came to saving knowledge of God, but rather that God has entered into your life to know you truly, intimately, totally. Now, if you take that into the core of your being, you know what your next thought will be? I need to run and hide. But that's not possible, friend. Verses 7 to 12. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. David moves from God you know me to God you are with me. If I'm in heaven, in the grave, if I'm shooting around the sun, if I'm on the other side of the ocean, if I'm in the darkness, you are there. Do you ever feel alone? Forgotten? Neglected? Ignored? Friend? Smash those dark thoughts that come from the pit of hell and remember who your God is. He is the God who promises to never leave you or forsake you, Deuteronomy 31.6. His plan was to know you and to be with you before you were able to know or be located, verses 13 to 18. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful, I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. 
all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Derek Kidner writes well, Any small thoughts that we may have of God are magnificently transcended by this psalm. Yet, for all its height and depth, it remains intensely personal from first to last. My friend, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. We've all seen the ultrasounds of babies in their mother's womb. And I know you've never seen crochet needles fashioning your precious life. It's a metaphor, but it is no less remarkable to try and fathom. God has a purpose in his forming and fashioning you, and he planned out every day of your life. Now brace yourself for the ending. If only you, God, would slay the wicked. Away from you, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. How does David jump from the wonder of God to the hatred of sinners? It's actually simple, my friends. When you gain a greater vision of God, the anomaly of evil and boastful, ignorant men who in full view of God defy him, it becomes unbearable. And notice, this hatred is not only directed at others, David directs it at himself, asking God to search every nook and cranny in his own heart to find anything amiss. My friend, the good news is nothing can separate you from the love of God. So make it your daily desire to do holy war on anything that will impede your worship of your holy God. My friend, remember who you are and who you belong to. Hi, I'm Pastor Dole of Heart City Church. Now, if you've been with us in this devotional series or spent much time going through the Psalms, you're aware that the Psalms testify again and again and again to human depravity. The Psalms pull no punches in showing just how evil humanity is. Today we come to Psalm 140, which Paul will actually quote in his infamous section of Romans 3 where he spells out that every human being stands condemned and will be held accountable to God. One of the key Reformation teachings, a Bible truth largely lost in our day, is that of total depravity. Total depravity means every human from birth on is deeply marred and has a fallen nature prone to evil. Yes, God made us good, very good. But the rebellion of Adam and Eve infected every human being. And let's be honest, we feel this. What often happens when we hear a command of God? We feel a resistance inside us rise up. But what happens when temptation comes? Well, we often feel the opposite, a pull to do that which we shouldn't. Total depravity does not mean that every person is as bad as we can possibly be, but it does mean we've been corrupted in every part of our being and we're prone to sin. R.C. Sproul says, well, we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. And this is why Jesus, the Son of God, his coming as a sinless human to pay for our sins on the cross is such good news.
By believing in Jesus, we no longer stand condemned and we can stop sinning. And on that day when Jesus returns, we will be fully rehumanized and made sinless like him. But that day is not yet. So the question for us today is, what do we do in a world full of sinners and particularly when they go so far as to begin unprovoked attacks on your person? Now you may be hearing, attack on me unprovoked, Joel? And inside you may feel a pull to respond sinfully and kind. Before going there, my friend, Let's take in Psalm 140, a Psalm of David. Rescue me, Lord, from evildoers. Protect me from the violent, who devise evil plans in their hearts and stir up war every day. They make their tongues as sharp as a serpent's. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Keep me safe, Lord, from the hands of the wicked. Protect me from the violent, who devise ways to trip my feet. The arrogant has hidden a snare for me. They have spread out the cords of their net and have set traps for me along my path. I say to the Lord, You are my God. Hear, Lord, my cry for mercy. Sovereign Lord, my strong deliverer, you shield my head in the day of battle. Do not grant the wicked their desires, Lord. Do not let their plans succeed. Those who surround me proudly rear their heads. May the mischief of their lips engulf them. May burning coals fall on them. May they be thrown into the fire, into miry pits never to rise. May slanderers not be established in the land. May disaster hunt down the violent. I know that the Lord secures justice for the poor and upholds the cause of the needy. Surely the righteous will praise your name and the upright will live in your presence. So friend, what do you do? when evil people seek to ruin you without cause. David shows us we call out to God for help and spell out all that they've done. And by the way, did you notice the progression? David began with the evil beginning in their hearts, turns to verbal attacks, and then the hands and feet follow suit. You see, evil begins in the hearts that are depraved by sin before it comes out in actions. And David recognizes his own heart problem, as we'll see in the next Psalm. So instead of becoming like his enemies, David calls out that God act and rescue him. Instead of returning fire on his opponents, David goes to God fully believing God can help him. Did you notice David confessing who God is for him? He confessed, Sovereign Lord, God, you're in total control of all things. He confessed, My strong deliverer. God is the one who delights in the rescue mission. He confessed God was his shield in the day of battle. Having God as your shield is the ultimate protection. Friends, confession is such a huge part of the Christian spiritual growth. Our confession in prayer is what emboldens us even as we see our helplessness. And by being reminded of who God is, we come to see that the enemies, the evil one's plans will not succeed. Now David does ask God to bring disaster on his enemies. We may feel uncomfortable about that, but we shouldn't. Because David recognizes these, that these evildoers want disaster to come to all of God's people, not just himself. And if that happens, David's concern is that God's name will be smeared. God is the one whose reputation is to secure justice, to uphold the needy's cause. So David prays that their evil scheming will boomerang back on themselves and we can do the same. This is not us being vindictive. It is us leaving it 
with the righteous judge. That's far better than us reacting in an ungodly manner, and it will result in increasing our faith. God once asked Abraham, Will not the judge of all the earth do what is just? So friends, God is the one who will determine if and when these others should drink their own medicine. So let's leave it with the judge and look forward to that day when we will be rejoicing in his presence forever. My friend, remember who you are and who you belong to. Hi, I'm Pastor Joel of Heart City Church, and we're continuing to sample the Psalms. You ever have seasons where your worship just seems bland, like a bowl of food that has little taste, you struggle to savor it, find any desire to dig in and enjoy? Listen to Psalm 138. I give you thanks, O Lord, with my whole heart. Before the gods I sing your praise. I bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and faithfulness. For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. On the day I called, you answered me. My strength of soul you increased. All the kings of the earth shall give you thanks, O Lord. They have heard the words of your mouth, and they shall sing the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand delivers me. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. You ever go through seasons where you struggle to worship, to believe that God is at work in your life and in the greater world at large? You do your devotions, you stand up to sing a praise song, and it just feels flat, like a Coca-Cola that has no fizz in it. That's where David is. He's feeling lowly. He's wondering about his purpose and work. We heard that he's in the midst of trouble and there are powerful enemies in the world doing evil. So what does David do during this season? He cultivates gratitude by remembering who God is for him. Three times in the first four verses, we find the word thanks. David thanks God with his whole heart. He bows his body down and thanks God for his steadfast love and faithfulness for exalting his name and his word. How much time do we spend thanking God for his love and faithfulness as promised in his word? Friends, God promised to send a savior and he did just that by sending Jesus to save us from our sins, from death, and to defeat our enemy, the devil, who wanted to destroy us forever. We are guaranteed glory for all our days simply by believing in Christ and his finished work. Let's thank God for doing more than all we could ever ask for or imagine. This will spice up our faith life no matter what season we're in and no matter what's happening in the world. Notice in the first verse, David thanks God while singing praised him before the gods of this day. These gods are likely the rulers of foreign nations who are opposed to God and his rule. But David does not let rulers' wicked ways detract him from giving thanks. Do you notice that David jumps into a time machine and looks at the certain future when all the kings of the earth will bow the knee to God and give him praise? God has declared, one day 
every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Philippians 2.11 You've been discouraged by our leaders or proud rulers in the world? You ever give thanks to God for the future day when evil rulers will only be able to praise God and never be able to do wickedness again? That will give you a whole new perspective, won't it? And David ends by reminding himself that God looks kindly on those who are lowly, who are humble. God remembers the meek as they go through rough patches and promises to preserve their lives in trials and will work out all things for their good and his glory. That's why David ends with a prayer, that God not forsake him. Friend, if you're having a tough season, pray always and never lose heart, Luke 18.8. There's a story of a woman who went to a restaurant. She had to use the restroom. She took off her expensive ring so she could wash her hands, and then she left without taking the ring with her. Later that night, in despair, she called the restaurant, and a person answered and heard her distress, told her, hold on, hold on. They went to the restroom, and after looking for a while, there it is. They found the ring. They went back to the phone and with joy said, I found your ring. I found your ring. But there was no answer. The lady had gotten frustrated that she had to wait, and she just hung up seconds before. She called out for help, but she was impatient and gave up. Let's not let that be true of us. You see, God loves to answer our prayers and he knows when it is best to answer them. So don't hang up, stay on the line. J.C. Ryle says, All our needs are fully known to the Lord of heaven and earth. He can meet those needs whenever he sees fit. He will relieve them whenever it is good for our souls. So let's spice up our life by thanking God for all he has done and what he has promised he will do. And let's continue to exercise our faith by calling out to God and not lose heart even in the tough seasons. Friends, the Lord may not come when you want, but he's always on time. Remember who you are and who you belong to. Hi, I'm Pastor Joel of Heart City Church and we're continuing to sample the Psalms. Now the big news of our day is the overturning of Roe v. Wade. And many folks are quoting Psalm 139 how human life is knit together by God in the womb. If we back up two psalms to Psalm 137, we find something quite different. It might even make us pretty uncomfortable. We might be embarrassed to find Psalm 137 in our Bible, a psalm you probably never sang in church and many pastors don't ever try and preach, because it ends with the pronouncing of a blessing over those who kill infants. Friends, let's not shy away from this. Rather, Let's seek to understand what God is saying. Psalm 137 By the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars we hung our harps. For there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? If I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you. If I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. Remember, Lord, what the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried. Tear it down to its foundations. Daughter Babylon, doomed to destruction. 
Happy is the one who repays you according to what you have done to us. Happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. Wow, how did this make it into the Bible? If we believe this is God's inerrant word and always profitable, how do we reconcile this blessing over the person who dashes infants on stones? Well, context is always important. And the first thing we need to recognize is that this is the voice of victims of injustice. The heart cry of ancient Hebrews weeping over the fact they're in Babylon. They saw their fellow Hebrews destroyed by the horrors of war. The Babylonians came to Jerusalem. They killed many. They raped women. They abused others. They killed infants too. And then they marched these victims to Babylon. And now they're taunting them. These are victims of injustice living in a foreign land far from home. You may be wondering, how can we relate? Well, on one level, we probably cannot, as most of us have not been victims of such injustice. But on another level, if you are a believer, you ought to understand the experience of alienation. We don't belong here. We should weep that we're far from home and be longing for that better place. We are pilgrims who do not reside here. Ultimately, we're just passing through until we reach glory. Friends, I think we are prone to forget that our citizenship is in heaven, and we act like it's not that bad to be living in Babylon. So we go to church, we sing happy songs, and we go back into the world and try to make the best of it. What do we do when trials come? What do we do when we're feeling alone, maybe even at church? What happens when we're betrayed? Oftentimes we don't know what to do with it, and we wonder, what in the world are you doing, God? Because we've forgotten where we are, and also we've forgotten that our highest joy and hope is in the new Jerusalem, not here. Revelation 21. Psalm 137 gives us the language we need to rehearse this, to help us to remember that we're not where we belong. It teaches us to cry out to God, to remember and to deal with our modern-day Edomites, those who've betrayed. Okay, but what about that last part? What do we do with this blessing pronounced on the one who bashes infants to death? Well, first, this is not endorsing infanticide. The Israelites in exile are not plotting themselves to destroy Babylonian babies. Rather, rather victims of injustice are saying the wicked should receive their just deserts. Actually, in our last psalm, we heard them praise God for striking down the firstborn babies of Egypt. And if you know the story, that was a fitting judgment. You see, the Egyptians were guilty of drowning Hebrew babies in the Nile. God judged the wicked Egyptians for how they were treating their neighbor's children. Now, you still may be thinking, this is a raw deal. Why do innocent babies suffer for the sins of their parents? Well, in the first place, there are no true innocents. God says, none are righteous, not one. Psalm 14, Psalm 53, we find it in Romans. The wonder is that a holy God would show mercy to any human being. If you understand the cross, my friend, you know we have all gotten better than we deserve. All of us stand under God's judgment apart from our turning and repenting. I think that actually might help us to reframe the abortion debate. I have heard many people say that Americans will be judged for all the abortions that we've committed. Friends, when a nation begins to destroy its future, 
That is God's judgment. God has already begun to hand America over to the judgment. Every baby that we have bashed demonstrates that God has handed us over, Romans 1. We all need to be repenting and taking injustice seriously because God does. This is a hard devotion, but it must be. There is no comfortable view of sin, of what resides in the heart of every human being. And if we're willing to get uncomfortable, it is then that we can cultivate a longing for the day, the day our Lord Jesus will return in glory to judge the living and the dead and bring in the new Jerusalem. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. My friend, remember who you are and who you belong to. Hi, I'm Pastor Joel of Heart City Church. Today we come to what is known as the Great Hallel Psalm, Psalm 136. The Hebrews sang this during Passover, and it's known for its refrain. All 26 verses end with, His love endures forever. And love here is not the feeling you and I might have for chocolate. You see, the word for love is chesed in the Hebrew. And chesed is not love narrowly defined as a feeling or an emotion. Yes, it feels. But chesed is love that is loyal. It's active love that is tangible and trustworthy. Psalm 136 calls us to praise God because His love is never fickle, has no reservation, is unconditional, it's steadfast, and it has no limits. Can we even begin to fathom this love? Jonathan Edwards once said well of God, His essence being love, He is, as it were, an infinite ocean of love without shores and bottom and without a surface. Let's explore this endless ocean. Psalm 136. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods. His love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. His love endures forever. Psalm 136 begins with a triple call to thank God for His never-ending love. And this threefold repetition invites us to see that God is three persons, which is actually the reason his essence can be love. Think about it. How can a God who is only one in essence, alone outside of the created order, love? The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have existed in all eternity, loving and enjoying each other, and it is out of the overflow of that love that the created order came into being, which we read about in verses 4 to 9. To him who alone does great wonders, his love endures forever. Who by his understanding made the heavens. His love endures forever. Who spread out the earth upon the waters. His love endures forever. Who made the great lights. His love endures forever. The sun to govern the day. His love endures forever. The moon and the stars to govern the night. His love endures forever. God's love is evidenced by the creation of all these things that we see around us. Have you ever seen an artist lovingly working over the details of their current masterpiece? Here is God spreading out the earth over the waters like paint, fashioning the stars, the sun, and the moon. And after every brushstroke or every molding, he looks at it in love and declares, Good. And then God formed and fashioned you and me, men and women, the very pinnacle of his creation. We were made in his image. And God said, 
very good. But we were only very good for a short time before we rebelled and became mangled. So God had to become our Redeemer with a restoration project that we hear about starting in verse 10. To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, his love endures forever, and brought Israel out from among them. His love endures forever. With a mighty hand and outstretched arm, his love endures forever. To him who divided the Red Sea asunder, his love endures forever, and brought Israel through the midst of it. His love endures forever, but swept Pharaoh and his army into the Red Sea. His love endures forever. To him who led his people through the wilderness, his love endures forever. In verses 10 to 14, God shows his never-ending love in rescuing his people enslaved in Egypt. He parts the Red Sea. He makes a way for his people to pass through safely, and he then leads them through the wilderness. And Psalm 136 then speaks to the love of God as our champion. Starting verse 17. To him who struck down great kings, his love endures forever. And killed mighty kings, his love endures forever. Sihon, king of the Amorites, his love endures forever. And Og, king of Bashan, his love endures forever. And gave their land as an inheritance, his love endures forever. An inheritance to his servant Israel. His love endures forever. He remembered us in our lowest state. His love endures forever. And freed us from our enemies. His love endures forever. He gives food to every creature. His love endures forever. Do you see that God is a friend in need? His love is seen in his raising up a weak people by triumphing over their great enemies and then bringing his people into the promised land. Now, you may be thinking, Joel, this is great if you're an Israelite living long ago, but how does that matter to me today? Well, my friend, all of these acts of love were pointing forward to his greatest act of love that came, that final Passover, when our Lord Jesus would come and offer his life to conquer all our great enemies, to become our champion. We could never defeat sin, death, or the devil, but Jesus came and did that in order to open the doors to our heavenly inheritance. And all we have to do is believe in his work. So we can be thankful and join in the final verse that ends actually where we started with giving thanks. Verse 26, give thanks to the God of heaven. His love endures forever. Final question. So why all the redundancy? The love of God repeated 26 times. Why? Well, friend, let's be honest. We are prone to think God's love for us will fade away. But Psalm 136 reminds us that God is not like us. His chesed endures forever. So remember who you are and who you belong to. Hi, I'm Pastor Joel of Heart City Church. Yesterday we finished the final of the Psalms of Ascent, Psalm 134, which began with the call to Praise the Lord. Well, Psalm 135 picks that theme up as it is bookended by calls to praise the Lord, or hallelujah. And it goes on to provide manifold reasons for why to praise the Lord. And interestingly, Psalm 135 is actually made up of quotes from the rest of the Bible. It really is a summary of why we are to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever.
in verses 1 to 4, we hear the call to praise. Praise the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Praise him, you servants of the Lord. You who minister in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the house of our God, praise the Lord. For the Lord is good. Sing praise to his name, for that is pleasant. And verse 4 goes on to tell us to praise the Lord because he's chosen a people to be his treasured possession. Now verse 6 is key because we hear how the Lord does whatever pleases him. Think about that. This is a most remarkable glory to try and wrap your head around. God always acts according to his good pleasure. He acts in a freedom that you and I can never know. And he freely acts in order to save us. We read in Isaiah 53.10 that it pleased the Lord to crush his own son. At the one time it would appear that God was a victim of circumstance. It was not that he was backed into a corner at Calvary's cross, not at all. But God acted freely because it was his good pleasure to save sinners at great cost to himself. Friend, this should lead us not merely to praise the Lord, but to tremble that we should be so loved. And Psalm goes on to talk about in verses 6 and 7 of God's greatness in all his created works. In verses 8 to 12, we hear of God's particular works in redemption, how he saved Israel from Egyptian slavery and how he struck down their enemies so that his name would be renowned for his compassion. And verses 15 to 18 then shift to mock the other gods, the idols of the other nations that people worship. The idols of the nations are silver and gold, made by human hands. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear, nor is there breath in their mouths. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. Notice how Psalm 135, like Psalm 115, gives a warning that those who make idols become like them. G.K. Beale says, well, what we revere, we resemble for ruin or restoration. And we're no different today, even if we're not bowing down before literal statues. If we devote our lives to anything other than God, to money, sex, career, sports, we will become like what we worship. So let's worship God. And Psalm 135 closes with a blitz of praise for God. All of you Israelites, praise the Lord. House of Aaron, praise the Lord. House of Levi, praise the Lord. You who fear him, praise the Lord. Praise be to the Lord from Zion, to him who dwells in Jerusalem, praise the Lord. Friends, when you meditate on who God is and all he has done to save you and his future promises, you cannot help yourself but to praise God to his glory and to your own enjoyment. C.S. Lewis says, well, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete till it is expressed. It is frustrating to have discovered a new author and not to be able to tell anyone how good he is. To come suddenly, at the turn of a road upon some mountain valley of unexpected grandeur, and then to have to keep silent because the people with you care for it no more than for a tin can in a ditch. To hear a good joke, 
and to find no one to share it with. The Scottish Catechism says well that man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. But we shall then know that these are the same thing. Fully to enjoy is to glorify, and commanding us to glorify him, God is inviting us to enjoy him. My friend, remember who you are and who you belong to. Hi, I'm Pastor Joel of Heart City Church. One thing uh, family members and neighbors know about me is that I look forward to each and every Sunday to gathering with God's people in worship. Now, occasionally, someone will come up and ask me, So, Joel, how was church today? What do you think the look would be on their face if I said this to them? How was church? Oh, I'm so glad you asked. It was like precious oil poured on the minister that ran down his beard and onto his clothes. It was like mountain dew drenching the entire congregation altogether. Now, I confess I've never said this because I don't think they would understand, but it is true. Listen to Psalm 133. How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. It is like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion, for there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. So friends, that is Psalm 133, the second to the last psalm of a group called the Psalms of Ascent. These share the same title because these were aids to the ancient pilgrims, a sort of guidebook, 15 of them, as they journeyed to the big church in Jerusalem. They would sing and pray these as they climbed, and it helped them to keep their eyes fixed on the destination. And it's clear from Psalm 133 that one thing that makes the big church temple worship so delightful is the wonderful feeling of unity that believers have as they come into God's presence. Dane Ortland writes, Few human joys run deeper than real unity, to know and to be known by others, to enjoy a shared heart in some endeavor, to sense the deep resonance of oneness that comes from loving and being loved. That, my friends, is the wonderful thing about gathering with the people of God. We leave this world of divisiveness behind, where folks are constantly angry at one another, a world where we constantly hear folks calling out for peace and unity consciousness, but there is and can never be any true unity because there's as many agendas as there are agents. But we, Christian believers, are a people with one agenda, to worship the true God, who we confess in complete contrast to our warring world. You see, we worship the one and the many, the triune God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God in three persons. And as we come into God's presence, we who are many begin to reflect God's unity. Now, we can only come into the presence of our holy God because, well, the Son, Jesus, came to be our high priest. And that is what the ancient pilgrims were glimpsing when they saw the oil poured on their priest, Aaron, and it ran down him, anointing him so that he could come before God as a representative. He actually was wearing a breastplate with stones that represented all 12 tribes. And now, by his death and resurrection, 
our high priest Jesus has passed into the heavens and he's bearing you and I. And he and the Father have poured out the Holy Spirit on everyone who believes. Which means when we come to worship, I don't have one spirit and Victor has another spirit and Gloria has another spirit. No, we all have the same Holy Spirit, the one spirit who unites us all together. And what a wonderful joy it is to be united, not by common hobbies or cliques, but by the same spirit, the same holy anointing. And it follows that as you would leave worship, you would feel like you've been just drenched with the heavens. Though I have to confess that perhaps sprinkled might be better in comparison to these ancient pilgrims. After all, they've been to church for a full week and not just for one service on one day like you and I. And they compare their week-long worship, that's what they're doing, to the dew of Mount Hermon coming to rest on them. Now Mount Hermon, it was the tallest mountain in Israel. So imagine what it'd be like to climb up and sit at the top for a week. <laughs> the view would be stunning. The air would be cool and crisp, but more, that mountain dew that would rest on you would be clean and pure. The dew would be divine. And friends, that is what worship is like. We leave this world behind for a while. We gain perspective as our Lord Jesus ushers us up to the mountain that cannot be touched. And we come to experience God's blessing, a taste of the world to come, and meaningful unity that can only come not as we strive for unity, but as we fix our eyes on Jesus and behold the grace of our God. A.W. Tozer writes, Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned, not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So 100 worshipers met together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. My friends, how excellent a thing it is, and it is all of grace. Remember who you are and who you belong to. Hi, I'm Pastor Joel, and congratulations are in order as today we arrive at Psalm 134. Today we wrap up our mini-series, The Traveler's Guide to Glory. We have been working our way through the Psalms of Ascent, Psalms 120 through 134, 15 Psalms that ancient pilgrims once took up as they journeyed from faraway places to the big church, the temple in Jerusalem. And it's my hope that these devotionals have served to help us on our own spiritual pilgrimages and aided us in keeping our eyes fixed on the glory which is to come that glory which will never end, which we hear about in Psalm 134. Praise the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, who minister by night in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands in the sanctuary and praise the Lord. May the Lord bless you from Zion, he who is the maker of heaven and earth. Now, if you're a Presbyterian, you likely know by heart our first catechism question, what is man's chief end? The answer, man's chief end is to glorify and enjoy God forever. Now, if you're not a Presbyterian, that might strike you as odd. First, because two things, glorifying and enjoying, are a single end. And second, because they seem to contradict each other. 
Joel, if I spend all of me, 100% to glorify God, then there's nothing left for me, so how can I enjoy anything? Friend, we're prone to think that way. Ever since our enemy, the devil, diverted our gaze from God to the things of this world. My friend, God is the greatest enjoyment that there can ever be. After all, he is the source of every joy. Therefore, my friend, the way to see it is that glorifying and enjoying are the single end. Like an infinity loop, everything directed Godward ends up being returned to its center in fullness of joy and then back around again. And that is what we find in Psalm 134, as we hear the call for God's servants to bless the Lord and to lift up hands in the sanctuary to praise the Lord. And think about that posture. We stand there in the worship of God, and we, yes, we Presbyterians can do this too, we can lift up our hands to show God that we want to see Him lifted up before the world. This posture of glorifying God is our way of reflecting His worthiness in our praise. At the same time, our hands are empty, ready to receive God's blessings and His joy. I was actually thinking about how our worship services close at Heart City Church. We all sing together to doxology, praising God. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above, ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And you hear that in Psalm 134. Actually, we're calling on God's servants, God's heavenly hosts, those who continue to minister at night, who are nonstop praising, hey, we're saying, keep it up because we're leaving worship now. And right after we finish singing the doxology and praising God, I raise my hands and I give the parting benediction while many put out their hands to receive this blessing before they go. And that's how the Psalms of Ascent close, with the priest raising his hands and saying, may the Lord bless you from Zion, he who is the maker of heaven and earth. And the pilgrims then file out on their way home, just as we head home to begin a new week. Let me ask you, you ever have that sense that we're going down, we're descending as we move away from Sunday toward Monday? And friend, it may just be that on Monday, you find yourself back at the start in Psalm 120, maybe in the warehouse or in the office, out in traffic, maybe at the store or even in your own home. You find yourself surrounded by hostility. You're back again in Meshach or Kedar, surrounded by lying lips and people who are for war. Well, see that Monday, see your Monday morning as the start of a new journey to the gathering of the people of God in Zion. And as you move towards Sunday, take up these little psalms in your hands and roll them around like pearls. And you'll find yourself not only making progress and glory and joy, but you'll also find yourself discovering your purpose for the whole of your life. I'll close by reminding you that the blessing of the Lord does not depart from you when you're in the valley because you've been blessed by the Lord who not only made heaven, but also the earth. And there's nowhere on earth where his blessings cannot go. Let each week be a microcosm of the whole life journey as we all make our way to the heavenly Zion, the city of the living God, where we servants will one day find ourselves in the forever glory of our gracious God. My friend, remember who you are and who you belong to.